Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, where we left off, Jeremiah preaches, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. How can you say, I'm not polluted? I haven't gone after the bales. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire in her time of mating. Who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her mouth. They will find her withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said there's no hope. No, for I have loved aliens. And after them I will go, as the thief is ashamed when he's found out. So is the house of Israel ashamed, they and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, saying to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. But where are your gods? That you've made for yourselves. Let them arise. If they can save you in the time of trouble. For according to the number of your cities. Are your gods O Judah. Why will you plead with me. You all have transgressed against me. Says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your word has devoured your prophets. Like a destroying lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say, we are lords, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you've also taught the wicked women your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lies of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies and you will not prosper by them. Remember what we've learned so far. Jeremiah has been called to preach in the opening chapter and in chapter two. Remember, he was given instruction. Go where I tell you to go. 
Say what I tell you to say. Don't be afraid. From chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 5, comprises a sermon. The theme of Jeremiah's proclamation takes the form of an accusation or an indictment against Judah. And it takes the form of five specific charges. He says, number one, the people have broken their covenant and dishonored their commitment to the Lord. Jeremiah likens that relationship of intimacy and permanency to marriage in verses 1 through 12 in chapter 2. The people were guilty of two very serious crimes, grave sins against the Lord in chapter 2, verses 13 through 19. They had forsaken the Lord, the source, the well, the spring of living water, and they sought satisfaction in the empty, unstable substitutes, the broken cisterns of man-made religions and human pleasures. Their abandonment of the relationship resulted in their own enslavement. They would be plundered. They would be conquered by oppressive nations. Number three, the people were guilty of having committed both spiritual metaphorical, if you will, adultery and actual adultery in verses 20 through 28. Number four, the people had failed to respond to God's repeated discipline, to God's repeated correction in verses 29 through 37. And when you get to chapter three, verses one through five, he will once again make a plea. The people need to repent. They need to change their mind. They need to allow God to change their heart. They need to allow that change of heart and the change of mind to result in a different way of living. And so Jeremiah will use poetic imagery, word pictures designed to illustrate and expose the people's sins. He uses the example of an unfaithful spouse in verses 1 through 8. Broken cisterns in verses 9 through 13. A plundered slave, verses 14 through 19. And now Jeremiah is going to write a poem. He is going to, in Hebrew poetic imagery, from verse 19 all the way to verse 37, he's going to use poetic imagery to communicate a powerful and an important lesson. He basically will, in verse 20, speak of Israel as a stubborn animal. In verse 21, a degenerate vine. In verse 22, a defiled body. In verses 23 to 25, an animal in the wilderness or the desert. In verse 26 through 28, he will describe her as a thief who's been caught red-handed. In verses 29 through 35, incorrigible children. In verse 36 and 37, prisoners of war. The point that he's making in the poem, the sins of the people, they're forsaking the true and living God. They're following after man-made idols. Man-made religions, the pursuit of pleasure, will bring judgment. And so the big question, is there any mercy available? Is there any grace available? Is there any hope available? Is there any 
way out of this bleak picture. You would think that with this kind of conversation, the hearts would break and people would ask the question, is there anything that we can say? Is there anything that we can do? Is there any amends that we can make to escape the coming wrath? And by the way, the answer to that question will form the next message that appears in chapter three. And so in a very real sense, this is poetry, metaphors for Israel's guilt leading to the conclusion in verse 29. You have all rebelled against me. It becomes a reiteration what we learn in other parts of the Old Testament. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned our separate way. But remember, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all in the New Testament. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So what do we do? Look at verse 19. He likens Judah to a stubborn animal. Your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. In other words... You will have to accept the consequences of resisting and rebelling. We talked a little bit about that. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. He puts it in no uncertain terms. Your backsliding, your resisting and rebelling against the Lord isn't good. It's bad. It is evil. And the fear of me is not in you. The point that he makes, what, what is that point? The reverential awe of God living under not a, a canopy and a dark cloud that God is in the sky with a great big club and he's going to kill me at any moment. But rather, it's the awesome responsibility of knowing that because he is the creator, because all things lie in his purview, because he is sovereign, because he is good, because he is holy, because he is righteous, because he is perfect. It should make perfect sense to you that one day you're going to meet him as either savior or judge says the Lord God of hosts. And so in verse 20, it says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. The Lord likens Judah to a stubborn, uncooperative animal that refuses to carry out its assignment. So when he says, for of old, I have broken your yoke. He is speaking of the yoke of bondage that had occurred early on in Egypt. They were under the yoke of slavery. And in the New Testament, we understand that we're under the yoke of bondage, under the yoke of sin. Jesus comes into our life to break that yoke, to set us free, to point us in a direction. But the fact that the slavery yoke has been broken doesn't mean that we don't have another yoke to wear. Remember, in the New Testament, Jesus says, come and learn of me and take my yoke upon you. For my burden is easy. Jesus invites us to say, 
you are going to be someone's slave, either of sin and unrighteousness, or you're going to be a slave of righteousness to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, also, the image that Paul uses of a yoke speaks of an animal, two animals that are joined together, pulling the same burden, going in the same direction. The Lord God had broken the yoke of bondage so that you could have an easy yoke and a light yoke. And then the Lord said, you know what I'll do? I'll take you out of slavery. I'll make you free. I will make you a people who can devote themselves to knowing me and loving me and serving me. And so the Lord says, I'll give you freedom. And the people said, we're there. We will obey you. Look what it says. And you said, I will not transgress. Here's here's part of the point. Hey, if I set you free from Egypt. And give you an opportunity so that your whole life can be devoted to knowing me, loving me and serving me. Will you do it? We're 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 in. We won't cross the line. Whatever you tell us to do, we will do. Question. How did they do with that? They didn't do well, did they? Is it true that every promise Israel made, every single agreement and every single promise, they broke every single promise? Some of you have been in a covenant relationship. Some of you have made promises to husbands and wives. Some of you have been in circumstances where you walked down an aisle and you made covenants, you exchanged rings and vows, you promised, you promised, you promised, and maybe you have been a participant in betrayal, and maybe you have been the recipient of betrayal. But that's part of the poetic language, what the Lord is using. Part of the point is Jeremiah is going to return over and over and over again to the theme of the people's hardness and wickedness and stubbornness of hearts. He will talk about it in chapter 3, verse 17, and in chapter 7, verse 24, and in chapter 9, verse 14, chapter 11, verse 8, chapter 13, verse 10, chapter 16, verse 12, chapter 18, verse 12, chapter 23, verse 17. And so when you're talking about stubborn, hard, wicked, hearts and the subject keeps coming up over and over and over again you can imagine in our study of Jeremiah we're going to have a whole lot to say about this subject Warren Wiersbe points out that when people who are made in the image of God refuse to obey God they sometimes begin to act like animals The high hills, by the way, were the places where the false religions find eager customers in the ancient world of Judea. When Jeremiah is preaching to the crowds, there were two major religions. The first religion, if you will, was the religion that was handed down through Moses and David and Solomon and then during the divided kingdom. But the next one was the infiltration of the Canaanite religion, and it was a Powerful religion and it was a persuasive religion and the reason why it was so powerful and persuasive is because the way that you worshipped in this religion is you had sex with prostitutes now not just metaphorically but really 
they would build temples. Remember, um, Baal was a male god and Asherah was a female god. And in their worldview and in their way of thinking, life was created from the male and the female. And so the sexual act itself became the method whereby they worshipped. And so there's not only sexual symbolism, but sexual acts. And so when the Lord says, when you're on every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. I'm reluctant to actually tell you what it says in the Hebrew and the imagery that's being communicated. Because it's so graphic and it's so lewd. The image is blunt. The prophets described the worship of any deity other than the true and the living God as a gross violation of the marriage act. And I don't have to tell you much more. You can see the imagery in the text itself. And then in verse 21. It says, yet I had planted you a noble vine and a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into a degenerate plant of an alien vine? So he goes from an animal that's broken free of the yoke to a vine that isn't what he planted. In the ancient world, by the way, the grapevine was usually planted by cuttings of If you know anything about grapes, in Southern California and in Northern California, they have lots of orchards and and vineyards. And the way that you literally plant grapes, you don't take grape seeds. You take grape cuttings. You take the cuttings of the plant. And, And it's precisely because the seed doesn't always breed true of identical grapes. And so he says, yet I had planted you a noble Vine, the idea being if you take the whole plant and you effectively transplant that plant, you have pretty good assurances that you're going to have a good vine. And over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Israel and Judah are pictured as a vine. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Over and over again, Israel is pictured as a fruitful vine or a fruitless vine. Do, are any of you familiar with a, a movie or a play that was called The Little Shop of Horrors? It came out a long time ago, but in this movie or play, a florist cultivates a plant and then the plant grows up eating human flesh and blood. In other words... You plant it and it becomes a monster. The Lord God planted the people in a good land, but they refused to produce a harvest of righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 5 verse 2 it says, So he expected to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. In other words, imagine you plant something and it doesn't produce fruit, and not only does it not produce fruit, it's a barren plant. How in the world did the people transform into this degenerate or alien plant? And so here is the idea. How did they become a degenerate and alien plant? It's because the people 
embraced and worshipped false gods. In other words, part of the point of the passage is they became exactly like their degenerate neighbors. How can dead, empty, worthless idols produce life-giving fruit? And so part of the accusation becomes, for us, I saved you out of sin. I reconciled you to myself. I've given you a new life and a new heart and a new hope. How in the world does it make sense for you to try to find hope and satisfaction and life and love in the empty pursuits that are all around you? And so then he goes on and he uses the image of a filthy body in verse 22. Look what it says. For though you wash yourself with lye and you use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. The lye was a mineral alkali called natron. And it was found in the soda lakes of Egypt. And the soda lakes of Egypt were mostly dry. And so the ancient art of soap making, it was a vegetable alkali. And in ancient Israel, they would burn plants, they would extract lye from the ashes, and then they would add oil or fat. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone make soap, but it's an interesting process. The point that he's making is there's no cleansing agent for though you wash yourself with lye, there's no cleansing agent invented by human beings that can clean you up. When I was a little kid, I discovered the power of vinegar and baking soda. Do you remember when someone first showed you that if you take vinegar and baking soda and mix them together, things will start fizzing. Things will start happening. It's all almost magical and wonderful. Vinegar and baking soda can be used as a cleansing agent. The point that he's making is people may not be able to peer deep into the human heart, but iniquity is marked by God. It's ugly stain doesn't disappear through good works or through religious rituals. In other words, the problem of the heart is the heart. For though you wash yourself with lye, even though you use a whole lot of soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me. You can shower and you can shower and you can wash and you can wash, but nothing is going to make the darkness of the wickedness inside of your soul go away. And hence we sing the song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What cleansing agent can go beyond the surface of your skin, inside of your heart, onto the surface of your soul, and wash you, and scrub you, and make you so that you don't smell, so that you can be acceptable to God? The point that he's making is that spiritual cleansing has to come from the inside. Now, remember what I've already taught you, that this is going to be a time when later a, the scrolls are going to be discovered. King Josiah is going to implement massive social changes. They're going to change the government. They're going to clean up the temple. They're going to start reading their Bible. And all of those things are good things. And we've already talked about it. 
You can say, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop drugging. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to stick the kids in the children's church. Um, We're going to turn off the stupid TV. We're going to live our lives differently. And you start making the external changes. But there's something wrong inside of your heart. Because in your heart, you know you have to make the changes. But inside of your heart, you're living in a constant circumstance where you want to return to the old ways of sin and that's exactly what was happening to the people of Judah the changes never reach their hearts Christians can say Christian things and do Christian things and read Christian literature and watch Christian movies but if your heart remains the same Unchanged, unaffected. And by the way, this is going to be an important word. Think about it or underline it or some way. Make yourself a note. Jeremiah, clearly he's called the weeping prophet. But Jeremiah is also the prophet who is concerned about the heart. As a matter of fact, the word heart or some form of the word is going to appear some 60 times in the book of Jeremiah. Sinful heart, stubborn heart, hearts that refuse to listen to God's servant or obey God's word. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart so that you can be saved. Look, I'm going to church and I'm reading my Bible. What more do you want from me? I've got to tell you something. Remember what the Bible says. I want you hot or cold. If going through the religious motions numbs you to the presence of God, understand something. Be willing to admit something. There's something cold. There's something empty. There's something wrong. And so later in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, you're going to hear the scripture repeated over and over again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What do I know about my heart and what do I know about the circumstances of my heart? We attempt to probe human nature and the human condition. We look for biological answers and physiological answers and environmental answers and social answers, political answers, philosophical answers, psychological solutions to man's deep problems. And Jeremiah preaches, listen, Judah, listen, you have to return to the Lord with your whole heart. Not with a divided heart, but with your whole heart, for only then can God heal you and bless you. Christianity is not a half-hearted effort. Well, what if I'm young? Hallelujah. One day you're going to be old like me. Well, what if I'm old? And I've heard that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's not true. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Jeremiah preaches that change can take place. 
And look what it says in verse 23. How can you say, I'm not polluted. I haven't gone after the bales. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her way. So he goes from the image, if you will, of a little shop of horrors to a filthy body to the wild kingdom. Jeremiah does what a lot of preachers do. How can you say I'm not polluted? Even though you may not understand. It's like when I'm speaking here and I anticipate a question that you ask in your own heart, even as you're hearing me speak. He anticipates the question of the people listening. The people say, look, you've got it all wrong. I'm not polluted by idols. The people Jeremiah are speaking to, they would have protested. They would have said, Jeremiah, we've been faithful to God. Is that true or false? That's false. Look, we're Jews. We have come out of Egypt. We are the recipients of Moses. We are the benefactors of the statements that are made by the prophets. Do you remember the statement that Stephen made as they were getting ready to kill him? Which of the prophets didn't you persecute? Name one single messenger of God that you at least didn't attempt to kill or actually outright kill. Here's what they were, would have protested. We're Jews. We're faithful to God because of our religious rights. We have a temple. Hey, we're dedicated to God. We're the chosen people. Jeremiah knows that calling a false God by Jehovah's name doesn't make that God Jehovah. We worship Jehovah. Tell me a little bit about Jehovah. It's Jehovah who lets me divorce my wife for any reason or no reason at all. It's Jehovah who says a little pleasure every now and then doesn't really matter. You get drunk, who cares? It's the Jehovah who understands plurality and religious tolerance. This is, we know the Jehovah who doesn't really care how we live and what we do. Is that really the Jehovah of the Bible? The false God doesn't become a true God by calling him Jehovah. And here the word translated Baal, in the, in the Hebrew it's Baalim. It's not a proper name, but it's the generic term for the Canaanite deities. It, it, it means every god and all gods in the pantheon of gods. And the valley is probably a reference to the valley of Hinnom. This is the south valley in Jerusalem where the Canaanites practiced child sacrifice at the high place called Tophet. This is the place where Ahaz and Manasseh offered children in sacrifice, murdered them in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 verse 3 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verse 6. This is the place where every kind of perverse wickedness that your mind can think of begins to take place. What if the people deny that they have a sin problem? What do you do? Jeremiah is preaching. 
Almost certainly there are people elbowing their neighbor. They're elbowing their husband. They're elbowing their wife. The preacher's talking about my husband. The preacher's talking about my wife. The preacher's talking about my neighbor. The preachers are talking about my children. They're talking about all of the people I'm surrounded with. I don't have a sin problem. I'm not polluted. I'm not an idolater. But Jeremiah says, then how do you explain what you do? How do you explain what it is that you actually do? And here's what he's saying. The Lord's calling on everybody to admit that they're guilty. Baal was the chief deity of Canaan, and the struggle between Jehovah and Baal came to a dramatic head on Mount Carmel under Elijah. Jehu would also deal a severe blow to the worship of Baal. There was this great dividing line that would begin to take place as people began to ask and answer the question, are you going to follow God or not follow God? And if you are going to follow God, is it going to be the God of the Bible? And when he talks about the dromedary, he's talking about a lost camel looking for an oasis. As a matter of fact, it's a very specific word in the Hebrew language. (laughs) It's a female camel who's not yet experienced childbirth or, or, or who have ever had a foal. One Bible writer says, quote, entangling her ways, the young camel wanders, crisscrossing her own path. Even a misguided camel will arrive at the right destination if it has a knowledgeable guide. Actually, I was the person who wrote that. But without a driver, she doesn't know where she's going. A young camel without a driver will kick into instincts and the young camel will just simply say, I want food and I want water. And then in in verse 24, it goes to the next example, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire in her time of mating. Who can turn her away? All those who seek after her will not weary themselves in her month. They will find her. Really, Jeremiah? Now, I want you to understand something. If I were teaching a homiletics class and some first-year student said, I'm going to use this as an illustration. A wild donkey in heat. I'm going to go, really? Is this the illustration you think you want to lose? Look, midnight at the oasis, the wild camel looking for water, I can see that. I can live with that. But a wild donkey in heat looking for a mate? Really? But this is the illustration that Jeremiah uses. Think about how offensive this is. The Jews were like wild donkeys in heat, pursuing false gods. Man-made idols, both Hosea and Jeremiah, are living in a time when people are jaded and few things shock them and command attention. Apparently, normal language and pleasant appeals seem to be doing no good. The existing conditions and the peril of the nation was such that shocking language might jar the, the listener into understanding the severity of their condition. 
How bad is it? Just be blunt. Tell me, how bad is it? It's pretty bad. This is how God sees the iniquity. You just see it as turning the TV channel. You just see it as listening to some stupid person. You just see it as living in a culture and living in an age and being bombarded by ideas and thoughts and images. And it's just the world we live in and and you have to get used to it. But the Lord says. This is repulsive. This is wicked. And how different is it in our own world? Does drifting from one failed relationship to another? Does drifting from one marriage to another? Does constant pressure from the world where there are no sexual boundaries, where all boundaries are removed, is this any different from animal kingdom or wild kingdom? The Jews drifted from one mate to the next, marrying and divorcing for any reason and no reason. And they somehow thought that their immoral behavior was completely acceptable to God. He understands. He understands where we live and he understands what we're doing. And he understands that, hey, it's just the way that it is. And Jeremiah is saying, A holy God and a righteous God, a God who loves you. He saved you. He's redeemed you. He's reconciled you to himself. I know that it may seem strange to you. It may seem old fashioned even. But I want you to love me and be with me. And so in verse 25, it says, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there's no hope. No, I've loved aliens and after them I will go. Now, think about this. The people, the Jewish people had exhausted their resources. They've worn out their shoes. Their throats are dry, desperately trying to satisfy their thirst with dirt instead of living water. Remember what we saw earlier? There's two paths in front of you. You can go to the place where there's the broken swimming pool and the muddy water, or you can go to the place of the living water. And if you go to the place where it's only dirt and mud, the truth is you're going to get thirsty after a while. Jeremiah again anticipates the conversation in the human heart. Quote, okay, but you said there's no hope. In other words, Jeremiah is preaching and they're hearing these words and the people are thinking, okay, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. I've gone too far. I've sinned too much. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. I've done things and said things and and done things that are unforgivable. No, for I have loved aliens and gone after them. Here it means... I have slept with complete strangers. In other words, this isn't some sort of affair. It isn't some sort of situation where you go off for a moment or you're somehow tripped up or you fall into a trap. In other words, these are a group of people who have been so engrossed in satisfying themselves that that there's no boundary, there's no limit, there's no one that they won't sleep with. As a matter of fact, here it means, Moffat translates this passage In poetic form, do not run your feet bare, your throat dry, 
But it's no use to talk. I am in love with foreign gods, you cry. That really captures the meaning. It's too late. I've gone too far. I'm in too deep. He anticipates the person who, like the drunk or the gambler, with, he anticipates the person who has some sort of addictive, compulsive behavior. Some person who says, you don't understand. Every morning I get up and I take a drink. Every day I turn on the, the, the computer and watch porn. Every day, day after day, day after day, I'm unable to get over this. I can't get past it. And he sees these children of Judah dripping from one God to the next and then to the next God and the next and here's part of the point that unless you skip ahead you're going to miss the point in chapter 3 verse 1 they say if, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's may he return to her again would not the land be greatly polluted but you played the harlot with many lovers the end of the sentence yet return to me Says the Lord. Yet. Return to me. He anticipates the person who says. My wicked circumstances are beyond help. And beyond control. You might as well. Stop talking to me. And Jeremiah says. I won't stop. It's like the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Remember how he was sick for years. He lingered by the pool in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 9. Remember he stays at the pool in the hopes that one day he might be healed. But then that hope turns into apathy and indifference. And finally he just simply gives up hope. I'm always going to be sick. I'm always going to be lame. I'm always going to be crippled. My life will never change. The good news? Jesus specializes in hopeless cases. Jesus is the Lord of the person who has nowhere else to go and nothing else to do and nowhere else to turn, who have tried the treatment programs, who have tried the failed counseling programs, who have gone to every kind of workshop and every kind of treatment center. Jesus is for the person who has exhausted their family and exhausted their sponsors and, and exhausted the resources and says, come to me. I'll change you. I'll change you. And then he likens it to a convicted criminal in verse 26. As the thief is ashamed when he's found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets. He likens it to the thief who's caught red-handed. The, the thief who protests his or her innocence, but the evidence is there for all to see. The shame, by the way, isn't the guilt or the shame... Of the person who says, I've done something terribly wrong. This is the shame or the guilt. I've been found out. 
This is the shame and the guilt that comes not from a thief who's been caught in an isolated incident. This is the professional thief. The thief, by the way, according to Exodus chapter 22, verse 3, would have to restore what he had stolen. And then he would have to pay a substantial fine. And he likens this reality to not Israel has, has gotten away with it. Have you ever heard the expression, ooh, I think I dodged a bullet. Ooh, I think I got away with that. You know, it's one thing to make a mistake. It's another thing to enter into a lifestyle of stealing. There's a big difference between a person who stole one time when they were a kid. They stole a candy bar. Yeah, it's safe to say that that person's a thief. But the person who steals every day, day after day, and every week, week after week, and month after month, and year after year, and he's saying that the whole nation is guilty, the whole nation can't hide its sin, the corruption begins at the top, the kings are corrupt, the princes are corrupt, the priests are corrupt, the prophets are corrupt, everyone, Jeremiah is saying, the whole nation, everyone, everyone, everyone is involved in the defection. And in verse 27, he says, saying to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me. For they turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and say and save us. Okay, here's the immediate context. Saying to a tree, you're my father. Think about it. Idolaters carve wood and stone. And then they think that they have supernatural powers. Technically and historically, this is the Azura pole. This is the pole that was dedicated to the female goddess of sex. It would have been planted in the high places and the stone was the sacred stone in the Hebrew language and in the ancient Canaanite, it represented the male deity. And so can you imagine? Here's what Jeremiah is saying. How smart is it to sing a song? My daddy is a tree. My daddy is a tree. Or Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And he's saying, think about how stupid that is. Your dad's a tree? Your papa's a rolling stone? But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Are they going to say to the Azure pole? And the sacred stones save us. You see, people who are smart, they understand that a piece of wood or a rock can't save you. In, in World War II, they had an expression. They called it foxhole conversion. That when you are in war and the bombs and the bullets are flying, the people in the hole they turn to the true and the living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. They turn to the God who made everything. They, they turn to the God who they're going to have to face when they face judgment. You've heard of foxhole conversion and jailhouse conversion. People go to jail. They wind up behind bars and they say, okay, I've had time to think about my life and my heart. And God, if you're there, help me. 
Can you turn to man-made religion and will it save you in the time of trouble? Jeremiah says no. And here's part of the point. Trouble is coming. In verse 28 it says, But where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. In other words, there's gods everywhere. As, many, as a matter of fact, they used to say, well, Ezekiel said it in, 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 that they had as many gods as they had streets in Jerusalem. But idols have limited resources. They're not real. Each city had its own little neighborhood deity. In Ezekiel 16.25, it says they sacrificed to Baal in as many places as they have streets in Jerusalem. And so the sin of idolatry finds its most egregious transgression, not in its origin. You made this yourself, but in their complete and utter inability to do anything that has lasting value. In other words, what does what do idols have in common? Number one, they're not real. Number two, they're only as real as you let them. And remember, you're the one who made it up. You're the one who fabricated it, is the point that he's making. And so even though people may imbue their idols with godlike powers or godlike abilities, they don't have godlike powers and they don't have godlike abilities. And finally, he likens them to juvenile delinquents. Look at verse 29. Why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In other words, the pleading is he hears the voices. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Every mom who has a kid has heard this statement. It wasn't me, mom. It wasn't me. And the mother says, why will you plead with me? You've been caught. The time for pleading is over. You're already caught. It's clear that what you've done is wrong. Why are you complaining? You're in rebellion. That's the point. The Lord has blessed you. The Lord has delivered you. So... Why is it that you rebel against God, verse 29? Why is it that you forget God, verse 32? Why do you lie to God, verse 33, 34, 35? You rebelled against God. I'm innocent. You forgot God. I'm innocent. You've lied to God. I'm innocent. By the way, how helpful is it when you're guilty to maintain your innocence? Healthy? Helpful? What's the right course of action? Admit that you're wrong and take your lumps. What are our lumps? Chapter 3, verse 1 at the end. Yet return to me, says the Lord. Return to me. You'll take me back? Yes. You'll forgive me? You'll wash me and cleanse me? Yes. Just admit it. Admit that there's something wrong. Admit that there's something dark. Admit that there's something wicked. Jeremiah 2.30 In vain I have chastened your children. 
Who is that? In vain I have chastened your children. Who are their children? Who is he talking to? Jeremiah is speaking to a group of people, but I'm going to share something with you prophetically. He's speaking to a future generation. In vain I have chastened your children. In other words, he chastened them in the past. He's going to chasten them in the present, but they're not going to turn. In vain I have chastened your children. They received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. The children of Israel are incorrigible. Do you know what the word juvenile delinquent means? Have you ever heard that expression? It refers apparently to a person that no matter what you say to them, no matter what you do to them, no matter how much you encourage them, they won't change. I tried to correct you. It was a big fat waste of time. Over and over and over, God will visit them with correction and instruction over and over again. I need you to repent. I need you to change. I need you to repent. I need you to change. I need you to repent. I need you to change. But they refuse to change. But then there's something worse. Not only do they refuse to change, but now they will blame God for their situation. You know the reason why I am the way that I am? It's your fault. You made me this way. You miserably put me in that home with that mother and that father. You allowed me to be exposed to things that people my age should never have been exposed to. You know the reason why I'm so messed up, God? You're the reason I'm so messed up. As a matter of fact, how do you think that's going to work? Do you think that's going to help? Do you think that's going to change their heart or change their circumstance or change the inevitability of judgment? It's not. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting scripture. You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. If you turn over to chapter 5, I want to say verse 3. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than stone. Have you ever had a child who you spanked the child and they laughed out loud? They laughed. And they said, what else you got? Is that helpful? Or does it make you want to hit them harder? Does it make you want to? How much pressure am I going to have to apply before I get a response? God sent messengers and then they killed the messengers. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come to you no more. The Lord asks two pointed questions. How have I failed you in the past? Why don't you come to me? Why have you deserted me? The people say we're lords. Do you understand what that means? It's their way of saying "I'm, I'm grown up now and I can do whatever I want. I'm grown up now. Oh, by the way, 
we've sort of outgrown that Egyptian thing. We've outgrown the wilderness experiences. We've outgrown the revelation of Moses. We've outgrown the testimony of the prophets. You see, we're grown up now and we can do whatever we want. Really? Really? I'm not going to do the God stuff anymore. I'm going to go in my own direction. I'm going to go my own way. And the Lord says, that's not going to lead to blessing. And that's not going to lead to life. And he makes that appeal. Look at verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? The attire was a sash or a girdle. By the way, in ancient cultures, particularly during this time, about the 7th century B.C., um, when a woman would get married, she would have a special sash that would indicate that she was married. In our culture and society, girls wear a ring. They put a ring on their, on their finger and it indicates that they're married. And so here, the Lord is basically saying... You're married. I married you. You're wearing a sash. Don't you understand that the sash says something in that culture and society? The sash was supposed to communicate a message. I'm married. I'm not available. I'm married. I'm not available. I've taken a wedding vow. How is it possible? How is it possible for you to forget your vow? How is it possible for you to think that you could possibly be available? That's what, what it's saying. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked woman your ways. This is Jeremiah saying, why would you make yourself up in such a way to elicit sexual response? Also, you know what he's saying? Judah, you could teach a harlot a few tricks. That's pretty blunt. That's pretty graphic. Also, your skirts are found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have found it by secret search, or I have not found it by secret search. Here's the idea. But plainly, the people exploited the poor. They were stained by their blood. The skirts are the skirts of a prostitute. It's a stained dress. In other words, this is a prostitute's dress. And the secret search is breaking and entering. And by the way, in the Jewish culture, breaking and entering was a crime. If a person broke into your home, they could be killed. If you broke into a person's home, and so here he's using the analogy, the blood of the lives of the poor innocents, I have not found it by secret search. In other words, I didn't break into your house and rifle your drawers and go through your underwear. I didn't want to say it. But you left it. In plain view. You left it in such a way that everyone could see it. And so when everyone in the village and everyone in the community brings out the stained dress, they know that an adultery has taken place. And in verse 35, yet you say, I'm innocent. Yet you say, because I'm innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you. Here's the idea. Have there been wives who have mistakenly thought 
If I keep telling my husband over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that I'm innocent, he'll one day believe me. Surely he'll believe me. And so here's what he's saying. Even though you repeatedly say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I'm still going to have to judge you because you're guilty. That's the idea. Repeated denials reveal not the innocence, but the perversity and the inconsistency of heart. And finally, he likens them to prisoners of war in verse 36. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Here, the idea is that they look for friendships and alliances with Egypt and Assyria. The idea being that both of them are going to let them down. In other words, they're going to be under a huge amount of pressure. Ahaz, by the way, in Second Chronicles chapter 28, attempts to purchase Assyria aid by emptying out the treasury, but the results are a complete disaster. In other words, if I can just find a political solution to this problem, then God's judgment won't come. But in verse 37, it says, indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. You know who put their hands on their head? Prisoners of war. They lock their fingers behind. They put their hands on their head. What does this position indicate? I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. That's what he's saying. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. Here's the idea. If you trust in these alliances, you will wind up captured and enslaved by the people you trust. And here's part of the other thing. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies. Why is Jeremiah using this illustration? Let me just be blunt. If you are a prisoner of war, if you're wearing prison garb and you're inside of the prison as a prisoner of war and you've been captured by the enemy, do you think that's a good time to go, hey, you know, there's something really wrong here. Is that a good time to evaluate your circumstance and go, Here I am in a prison camp as a prisoner of war, and I think it's time that I start to think about my relationship with God. Each one of these illustrations is meant to do exactly that. What will it take for you to go, hmm, I wonder, I wonder. I wonder what God thinks about my life right now. I wonder what he thinks about my life right now. I wonder what he thinks about my heart right now. I wonder what he thinks about my circumstances right now. I wonder if he cares. And so Jeremiah preaches. By the way, you are a rare group of people. The vast majority of people won't spend five minutes listening to a preacher. Preaching's fallen out of favor. People will even use that expression. Don't preach to me. But Jeremiah will continue to preach. And I guess so will I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, what will it take for us to listen? What has to happen before we will go, hmm, I'm ready to listen to what God has to say. I think I'm willing to consider his claims on my life. I think I am now ready to listen to what you want. Lord, we know that sometimes we can get into a rut. We can think that we're fine. But Lord, we pray that you would, again, like the psalmist says, search us, O Lord. Try our hearts. See if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Point us away from our sin and point us towards the Savior. His love, His grace, His mercy, His redeeming, all-encompassing, all-cleansing sacrifice. Lord, we're so grateful for Jesus. That He loves us and that He died for us. That His sacrifice is the satisfying solution to our sin. That, Lord, you've liberated us. You've taken the chains off of us so that we would be men and women who are free to love you and be led by you. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't fall into the trap of being satisfied with sin and sin substitutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.